You all can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be studying the Beatitudes this morning, Matthew 5. Just so you know, the next two weeks, I will be rotating and teaching this sermon at the other two campuses, and Matt and Brian will be rotating over here teaching the sermons that they're teaching. So if you rotate and go to another campus, you're going to hear this sermon again from me. So hopefully you like it today. We'll see. All right, Matthew 5. I do have a question for you. How many of you we're rooting for the Falcons to win the Super Bowl. It's not as many as I expected. According to Facebook and my Twitter feed, it was like 90% of the country. We're pulling for the Falcons. It was like this glorious couple hours when the nation was united in our shared dislike of the New England Patriots. And it seemed like everything was going our way until the very end. What an unbelievable turnaround right at the very end of the game. It's arguably the best Super Bowl ever because of that shocking reversal right at the end. What I found funny is that by the third quarter, there were anti-Tom Brady memes going around the internet because people were sure the Falcons had it in the bag, but they were wrong. I love it that at the end, there was this incredible shocking reversal where the winners became losers and the losers became winners. That was shocking, and that's actually exactly the emotion that Jesus wants you to have as you read the Beatitudes. These short eight statements, just eight statements from Jesus, they're meant to be shocking. They're meant to be revolutionary. Actually, the problem for most of us is that we have read them so often, we've heard them since we've been kids, that they've lost that shocking effect on us. They just kind of wash over us. And so my goal this morning is to help you recover some of that shock that was meant in the Beatitudes, to see some of the revolutionary things that Jesus is saying in these eight short statements. So let's start by reading them. Look at chapter five with me. Let's start in verse one. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, to start, we've got to define this word. That's used over and over again at the beginning of each verse. Bless. That word is so overused these days. It has become its own obnoxious hashtag that people use when life is going well. So you're on a vacation at the beach. Blessed. You buy a new handbag. Blessed. You're hanging with your friends. Blessed. You get a walk-in class. Blessed. That's really annoying to me. I do not like how that word is used. And so I confess, I was a little disappointed this week when I studied that Greek term and came to realize that's exactly what it means. (laughs) That hashtag is actually not far off of what this Greek word means. Here's the interesting thing going on with this word. It's it's the word in Greek, makarios. And makarios simply means any reason that someone has to be happy or to celebrate. Back in Jesus's day, it was not an overtly spiritual term. It was not referring specifically to God's blessings in your life. There was a distinct Greek word for that. That's not the word Jesus uses. This word that Jesus uses just means anyone who has something to celebrate. 
So the blessed person is the person who is privileged or the person who everyone envies, everyone looks up to, everyone wants to be that kind of person. So this word blessed is actually interesting when you, when you look at the ancient literature. This word was used very often in lists of blessing just like this one. Jesus isn't the only ancient speaker to give a beatitude, to list out the people who should be celebrating. This was a very common formula. Blessed or happy is he who blank. So, so that's not the radical part that Jesus lists out people who have cause to be happy. The radical part is when you read all of those other lists outside the Bible and see who it is that they believed had reason to celebrate. According to those lists outside the Bible, who was blessed? Well, the wealthy, the healthy, the successful, the intelligent, parents with great kids, those people who were self-righteous in the sense they were very moral, upstanding citizens. Those are the people who the world says, you are blessed, you have reason to celebrate. The radical or shocking part of the Sermon on the Mount is not that Jesus says there are people who are blessed, but the kind of people that Jesus says have reason to celebrate. Jesus turns the values of the world upside down. The kinds of characteristics in life that the world says you have reason to be celebrated are the exact opposite of the characteristics that Jesus says you have reason to celebrate. So I want to walk you through these eight revolutionary, radical characteristics that Jesus lists, that if you have them in your life, he is saying, you can be happy. You can celebrate that you have these. So let's jump right into our list. Who is it, according to Jesus, who has reason to celebrate? Well, category number one, those who are poor in spirit. We looked at this term last week. It was the exact opposite of the Pharisees' attitude. You remember the Pharisees? They were men in ancient Israel who were wealthy. They had so much time that they kept a long list of outward commands. And, and they kept that list so well that they'd convinced themselves they were actually righteous in God's sight. We call that self-righteousness. They believed they had already earned their way into God's kingdom. They didn't think they needed a savior. They are the opposite of the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who recognize they have not and cannot earn their way into God's kingdom. The poor in spirit are those who recognize that they desperately need a savior. The poor in the spirit are those who, with G.K. Chesterton, would say, the problem with the universe is me. The problem of sin and evil is not out there, it's in here, in me. I need to be delivered from the sin in my own life. God, please save me. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Jesus taught a sermon very similar to this one. So here in Matthew, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus taught a similar sermon at a different place. It was kind of a plain where he taught. And in that sermon in Luke 6, he reiterates some of these beatitudes, but he, he tweaks the language just a bit. And so here's one of those, Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Same beatitude, but now it's just the poor. 
Who are the poor? Well, Jesus is talking about the literal poor, those who do not have money for the necessities of life. Now, why would Jesus do that? In one sermon, poor in spirit, those who are spiritually poor. In another sermon, the actual literal poor. What's the connection? Well, both groups, the poor in spirit and the literal poor, are absolutely, desperately dependent on God. You see, if you were poor in the ancient world, there was no social safety net to lift you up. No Medicaid, no welfare, no food stamps. You were absolutely dependent on God's grace to get you through one more day. And so both the spiritually poor and the literally poor are humble before God. They're on their knees before God. God, save me. I cannot save myself. And Jesus says the person with that kind of attitude who falls before God and says, save me, that person is blessed. That person has reason to celebrate, to be happy. Why? Because God has promised that's the kind of person who gets into the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, we talked about that last week. It's the kingdom of God come to earth. Jesus was bringing God's kingdom to earth. Who would get in to God's kingdom when Jesus brought it? It's the poor in spirit, those who humble themselves before God and say, save me, I cannot save myself. God opens the doors of heaven. He opens the doors of his kingdom to everyone who is willing to lay down their self-righteousness and ask him, to save them. That's the good news we call the gospel. This, this incredible good news that is so different than every other religion. In every other religion, you are earning your way to heaven. In every other religion, you are keeping the rules or you are doing good things so that God will love you. You are earning your way into God's family. Christianity says, no, you will never be good enough to earn heaven. You will never do enough good to be worthy of joining God's family. So what does God do? He gives it to you for free. He gives you heaven, he gives you forgiveness, he gives you eternal life, he gives you membership in his family, and all you have to do is ask for it. Just fall down before God and say, God, I'm a sinner, I cannot save myself, please deliver me. Please save me. The incredible news is that God saves us, not because we're worthy of it, but because Jesus was worthy of it. That's what the cross is about. Jesus earned heaven for you. Jesus earned forgiveness for you when he died and rose from the dead. And now God offers that to you as an absolutely free gift. And all you have to say is, please, God, save me. So the poor, financially and in spirit, have reason to celebrate and rejoice because God honors their absolute desperate dependence. He will be their deliverer. Second group that Jesus says have reason to celebrate are those who mourn. Uh, we probably understand what mourning means. It's to weep, to grieve. The question is, what are these people mourning over? And, and it's kind of a, a debate that has divided commentators. I read some commentaries where, where these scholars said, well, this is the same thing going on in the first beatitude. It's people who are mourning over their sin. Other commentaries said, no, these are people who are mourning over all the tragedies in life, like death and sickness and pain and suffering and violence. Well, I actually think it's both. Julie laughs at me a lot. My answer to most biblical controversies is, if in doubt, it's both. Both things together. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying anyone who mourns for any reason in this life has reason to celebrate. 
anyone who mourns, whether it's for a physical reason or a spiritual reason, because here's what's going on. When you are mourning, what are you doing? When you're weeping, when you're grieving, what you're doing is you are confessing that this world is not as it should be. You are saying to the universe, this is not the way it was supposed to be. Sin should not exist, but it does, and so I grieve over the sin I find in my life. Death should not exist, but it does, and so I grieve when a loved one dies. Sickness should not exist, but it does, and so I grieve when I get bad news from the doctor. When you mourn, you are confessing this world is not the way that it was supposed to be. And Jesus says that act of mourning is actually a blessing. You are proving that you have reason to celebrate. Why? Because you will be comforted. And that's pointing forward to when Jesus comes back. Jesus is coming back soon. And among many things that he will do upon his return, he will fix all that's broken. All the stuff that you weep over, whether it's sin, evil, violence, sickness, pain, death, all of that stuff will be eliminated when Jesus comes back. And so we who mourn, we will celebrate when Jesus comes back. But those who don't mourn will not celebrate. Why? Because the people who don't mourn over brokenness in their life or in the lives of other people, those are the Pharisees. They don't mourn over the sin in their lives because they don't think they have any. They don't mourn over the pain in other people's lives because why would I care about other people? If you are a Pharisee, whether an ancient or modern Pharisee, you will not have anything to rejoice in when Jesus comes back. When you mourn over the tragedies in this life, Jesus said, you have reason to celebrate. Your mourning is proof that you're not putting your faith in this life. You are looking forward to the next life. When everything will be fixed that is broken today. You will be comforted and everything will be right. Okay, so those who mourn, that's the second group Jesus tells us have reason to celebrate. Third group, those who are gentle. Wow, talk about a misunderstood word. Gentle in English does not at all reflect what the Greek word means. Gentle in the Bible is not at all the opposite of strong. The most gentle man who ever lived is who? Jesus. And yet he's infinitely strong. He is God. And let's remember, Jesus stilled a whole storm with one word. He is infinitely strong. And and not only is he strong, but Jesus is pretty aggressive at times. You remember, he walked into the temple one day and he saw people profiting off of others' worship. And what did he do? He made a whip and beat them. That's not passivity. That's not weakness. So what does it mean biblically to be gentle? Well, gentle means that you're the kind of person who's not caught up with your own self-importance. Instead, you're humble. You, you throw your weight around to help other people, not to help yourself. So this is pretty much the exact opposite of all the people you read about in the news today. The people who make headlines in our world are not the gentle. The people who make headlines in this world are the people who care most of all about promoting and protecting their fame, their name, and their brand. The people who are the opposite of gentle are typically the people who have tens of millions of Twitter and Instagram followers, all of these people who want to be like them. They're the famous. And what Jesus wants us to understand is the famous have the world today, but they won't in the future. 
In the future, when Jesus returns, he's going to hand the world to the exact opposite of the people who run it today. And that's the blessing. Why do the gentle, why do the people who care more about others than their own reputation, why do they have reason to be happy? Because when Jesus returns, not only do they get heaven, but what does Jesus say? They get the earth too. When Jesus returns, this world will belong to the people you don't know about today. The people who don't have a million Facebook followers, the people who don't have a name in the news because they're too busy caring about other people to build up their reputation. The kind of person who cares so little about his own brand, his own name, his own reputation, that he just cares completely about you. He's always trying to lift you up. He's always trying to care for other people. No one knows him. He's always behind the scenes, blessing other people. Jesus says, when I come back, I'm giving the world to that guy. Won't belong to the people who are in the news today. It'll belong to the humble. It'll belong to those who spend their time lifting up others instead of themselves. So if no one knows you and you don't have a lot of Facebook or Twitter friends, that's okay. That's actually good news. Jesus says, if it's because you are too busy taking care of other people to promote your own brand, cheer up. In the future, everyone will know your name because you'll be running this place. All right, next group of people who are blessed according to Jesus, who have reason to be happy, those who hunger for righteousness. Now, this is probably exactly the same idea as the first beatitude, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are people who are desperate for God's righteousness because they realize they don't have righteousness of their own. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're saying, my belly is empty. I don't have any righteousness to feed into my own life. I need God's righteousness. Again, the exact opposite of the Pharisees. Pharisees had no room for God's righteousness. Their belly was stuffed with their own counterfeit self-righteousness. But when you come to God and you say, God, I have no righteousness to offer you. I have no goodness to offer you. I need your righteousness. I need your goodness. Jesus says, you have reason to celebrate. You, You have reason to be happy Because you, in the future, will be satisfied. God will give you his righteousness, his goodness. He will satisfy your needs. Now, what's interesting is to go back to that parallel sermon that's in Luke chapter 6. Jesus tweaked this one, too. He says in Luke 6, 21, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Again, it's not looking at the spiritual side. It's looking at the physical side. When you're starving, you're blessed. Why? Because the fact that you're starving puts you in a position of dependence on God, and God is always good to those who are dependent on him. So whether it's spiritual hunger or physical hunger, when you humble yourself before God and depend upon him, wait upon him, you are blessed, you have reason to celebrate, because God will come through for you. He will satisfy your needs. He will take care of you. That again, that's the... the, the stunning thing about Christianity, I I hope you're not missing that, that it is so opposite of every other religious explanation. You do not fill your life with righteousness so that God will accept you. You admit you have nothing to offer and you receive righteousness from him as a free gift. It is an absolutely free gift to all who say, I hunger and thirst for it, Lord. So that's the fourth group who Jesus says has reason to celebrate. Fifth group who he says has reason to celebrate, the merciful. 
the merciful. It tells us in Titus 3, trying to understand this term mercy. Here's what it looks like. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So there's the term. So what is mercy? Well, according to this passage, what do we deserve from God? Judgment, punishment, because all that sinful stuff at the beginning. What does God give us instead? Salvation. Out of kindness and love, he gives us good things we don't deserve. That's the idea of mercy. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, he's talking about people who come to the aid of those in need, even if they don't deserve it. Mercy is when you see someone in need who does not deserve your help, and yet you give it anyways. So let's illustrate. Mercy is when your roommate has not done the dishes again and it was their turn and you're really frustrated because you did them the last 10 times and you want to go bring justice and throw all their stuff out on the yard and what do you do instead? You roll up your sleeves and you do the dishes and here's the key part, without grumbling under your breath. You do it out of love for them, that's mercy. Mercy is when your spouse says something really mean to you and you desperately want to defend yourself. You want to strike back because that is fair and instead you hold your tongue and you exercise forgiveness and grace. That's mercy. Mercy is when somebody throws shade on you online, they embarrass you on, on social media, and you know exactly how to hit them back, and so you type this comeback that is witty and sharp and funny and brilliant, and it is the best comeback in the history of social media, and you know that as soon as you hit enter, you're going to get a thousand likes, and instead you hit delete. Because you do not want to become part of this cycle of online vengeance. That's mercy. You are giving someone good that they don't deserve. Now that kind of mercy is hard. It's hard. It requires a sacrifice. You have the right to justice. You have the right to get what's coming to you. But you choose to sacrifice that right. And give someone forgiveness and love that they don't deserve. Why should you do that? Mercy is hard. Why is it worth it? Because Jesus says if you're merciful now, you will get mercy later. When you stand before God, he will be merciful to you. Now, what does that mean for us who are believers? Our sin has already been forgiven. If you've trusted in Jesus, if you've received eternal life as a free gift, you are going to heaven no matter what. But here's the deal. When you show up in heaven, one of the first things that's going to happen is that you're going to stand before Jesus and he is going to judge you. Not for heaven or hell, but he is going to evaluate your life as his servant. And if you were faithful in this life, if you were obedient, then he's going to say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. If you weren't faithful and obedient in this life, then you will feel ashamed of yourself. Now, I look at my own life and I see there's a whole lot of stuff I've done that I'm not proud of. I, I don't want Jesus to judge me for those things. The good news is the more merciful I am in this life, the more merciful Jesus will be when he evaluates my life. Again, that judgment, it's not about heaven or hell. You're already in heaven. But it is a terrifying thing to stand before Jesus, even if it's in heaven. 
Jesus will be merciful to you in that moment when your life is laid open before him if you have been merciful to people in this life. Mercy is hard, but it is worth it. As you're merciful now, you earn mercy then. Okay, so we have reason to celebrate and rejoice if we're merciful people. Sixth reason for celebrating those who are pure in heart. That's an Old Testament phrase. Takes us back to the book of Psalms to help clarify. A lot of us, we read pure in heart and we think like moral purity. That's not what's going on here. Here's our, here's our help. Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, there's the phrase, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord. Pure of heart is contrasted to, to falsehood and deceit to show you that the phrase means honesty. It means you're a person who lives with integrity. You live a life that is free of hypocrisy and manipulation. You walk in the truth. You are honest with God and with other people. You mean what you say. You admit when you're wrong. You're honest in your confession and your accountability with other people. That's the kind of person who Jesus says is blessed. And we need to pause on this for just a moment because we need to confront for us guys a lie that we pick up in this culture. Men, we pick up this lie that, that a successful man is a manly man. And a manly man hides his weaknesses and his sins and his faults and he puffs out his chest and sucks in his gut and shows nothing but competence to the world. Guys, that's, that's really what we want above all else is to look competent to other people. And so we try to hide all of our vulnerabilities, all of our weaknesses, all the stuff we don't like to show off and we just try to look strong to everybody. And Jesus says, if you do that, that is really bad news for you. You're not going to see God. That's a serious thing. It means you're not going to be in God's family. You're not going to go to heaven. What is he getting at? Well, if that's the attitude you have towards God, you're a Pharisee. You're puffing out your chest, sucking in your gut and saying, God, let me in because I earned it. God says, no way. You're not getting in. You are not strong enough. A manly man in reality is a humble man who falls on his knees and says, I am a weak, foolish sinner who desperately needs God and other people or I will not make it through this life. Men, unless you are willing to sacrifice that falsehood of invulnerability, you're never gonna be honoring to God. You gotta be willing to say to God, God, I'm a sinner in desperate need of you. We need to be willing to say that to each other. Men, we need to admit our weaknesses. We need to live in truth and in accountability. We do not have it all together. Blessed is the man who will admit that. So who has reason to rejoice? The pure in heart, those who are truthful, those who are honest with God and with others. Seventh group of people who have reason to celebrate, the peacemakers. Now, we have to clarify, peacemaker is not a peacekeeper, So a peacekeeper is like a soldier, has authority and force to bring about peace. That's not what we're talking about. It's also not a peaceful person. A peaceful person is just someone who tries to get along with everybody. That's not what we're talking about. A peacemaker is someone who enters into conflict that doesn't belong to them to try to bring reconciliation between those who are fighting. So that's what a peacemaker is, someone who helps other people reconcile. 
So this is you when you see your friends fighting with each other. It's not your fight, but you see two of your friends fighting and you engage in the conflict. And lovingly, you listen to both sides and you help, help them to reconcile and to come to terms. This is the person who sees a marriage in conflict and chooses to engage and to help those spouses, listening to both sides, helping them to understand one another and come back together. This is a person who sees two groups in conflict with one another and engages to listen to both groups and be a bridge that helps bring those two groups together. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. And being a peacemaker is hard. That's why you don't see a lot of peacemakers in this world. See a lot more peacekeepers and peaceful people, but very few peacemakers. Because it's a sacrifice to make peace. Because remember, that's not your fight. You could just sit on the couch and watch TV. Why are you going to get engaged in this conflict that is not your own? Conflicts are uncomfortable. They're emotional and people say mean things. And if you're not careful, everybody's just going to end up mad at you. So being a peacemaker, it's risky. Why would you take that risk and that sacrifice to help others make peace? Well, Jesus tells us the reason that you're blessed if you make peace is because the world will know that you are sons and daughters of God. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are a son or daughter of God, but the world can't see that. They can't see your faith in Jesus. What can they see? They can see a person who out of love is willing to get off the couch and engage in a conflict that is not their own for the purpose of helping those parties reconcile. That is a beautiful thing that shows the world that we follow a God who loves peace. That's why, for example, it is so beautiful when Christians get engaged in racial and ethnic reconciliation. When Christians put forth the effort to listen to both racial groups who are in conflict with one another and tries to be a bridge bringing those groups together, that is an inherently beautiful thing to God because that shows the world that we love peace like God loves peace. Shows the world that we are children of God. So who has a right to be happy, a a reason to celebrate? Well, not, not the wealthy, not the famous, not those living on the beach, It's those who choose to be peacemakers, to put in the incredibly hard, sacrificial work of helping groups in conflict reconcile. Final group that Jesus says has reason to celebrate in this life, those who are persecuted for righteousness. Now, the end of that phrase is important, persecuted for righteousness. This is not your prof giving you an F because you failed a test. This is not a policeman giving you a ticket because you did a 70 and a 30. That's called justice. This is persecution for the sake of righteousness. You are ill-treated because of your allegiance to Jesus. So this is the believer who is fired because he was not willing to do the unethical thing his boss told him to do. This is the, the believer who's a professor who is denied tenure because she made a public profession of faith in Jesus. This is the high schooler who is ridiculed because he's not willing to sleep around like all the rest of his friends. This is the man or woman who pays a price for following Jesus. He or she is blessed. They have reason to celebrate. Why? Well, Jesus says, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Now, at first glance, that could confuse us. Because in verse 3, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit, those who trust in Jesus. Is he now adding a condition? You also have to suffer well for your faith. Well, no. The answer is found in the next couple verses. Look at verse 11. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your, your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you are persecuted in this life because of your faithfulness to Jesus, what Jesus is saying, you have reason to celebrate because not only are you getting into heaven, which came through faith alone, but when you get there, you will be rewarded by Jesus. Now, one of the most common questions I'm asked after a sermon is, what will the reward be? And I don't know. Bible doesn't tell us. What the Bible says is that everybody in the New Testament who talks about these rewards says that the rewards are so great that they make all of the pain and suffering of this life seem like nothing. The rewards you will have in heaven for faithfulness to Jesus in this life trump all of the pain and suffering you will have now. It's worth it to live for those rewards. So when people persecute you for your faith, you can say, I'm blessed in this. Their persecution of me for my faithfulness is proof that not only will I go to heaven, but I'll be rewarded there. Like the great men and women of the Bible who were persecuted for their faith. Men like Isaiah, Daniel, Paul, Peter, you're going to be in good company in heaven, receiving reward from Jesus when you're persecuted in this life. Okay, let's, let's draw all this together. Let's summarize What is Jesus doing with these eight statements, these beatitudes, this list of blessings? What he's doing is he's turning the world upside down. He is telling you that a great reversal is coming in this world. There is a day coming when Jesus returns and he flips the world upside down. And everything that's valued now will not be valued then. And everything that's not valued now will be valued then. So what does the world value now? Well, fame, wealth, beauty, talent, intelligence, power. That's what gets you honor in this world. When Jesus comes, all of that will be thrown away. None of that will count at all. Instead, what will Jesus value? Humility, dependence, mercy, gentleness. The person who has lived that kind of life a life of humility, dependence, mercy, gentleness. That's the person who will receive honor and reward from Jesus when he returns. There's this incredible reversal coming as soon as Jesus comes back, which is going to happen at some point soon. And so what do you do with that reality? You know that the world as you see it is about to be turned upside down. How should you then live? Well, I'm gonna give you two particular applications. So I'm going to give you these in in the form of questions. So the first question, I want you to think about your life. Where are you chasing happiness? Now let's be clear. Every single one of us is chasing happiness. That's what all human beings do. We are chasing after a life that we think will be more satisfying to us. Some of us chase happiness in this life. Some chase happiness in the next life. Some chase happiness in material things. Some chase happiness in spiritual things. But all humans chase happiness. The question is, where are you chasing that happiness? Are you chasing it in the things the world values? Money and promotions and fame and beauty and all of that sort of stuff? Or are you chasing it in the things that Jesus values? Humility and mercy and gentleness and dependence and selflessness. I hope that from looking at the Beatitudes, 
You are struck by the conviction that, wow, I I really wish that I valued and chased what Jesus tells me to value and chase, but I so often fall short. That's where I am. And so practically speaking, what can you do? What can you do today to chase happiness in the right places? Number one suggestion for you, most important of all, you will chase the right things if you follow the right role models. Where you go in life is largely dependent on the people you look up to. We all have role models. Every human being on earth does. We tend to look up to the people who we think are farther along on the path to chasing down happiness. So for most of the world, it is the Kim Kardashians and the LeBron Jameses. We believe that they are happy, so we want to be like them. No, if Jesus is right, they are not happy. They have not arrived at happiness. We need different role models. Find a role model in your life who has been chasing happiness in the right thing. So for me, number one, that's my parents. I've been able to watch my parents chase the right things for 40 years now. So I just follow their example. Number two for me is some of the elders at our church, particularly the elders who have died. Because I got to watch them all the way up to the day of their death. Men like Dick Davison. I watched him chase the Lord and chase what the Lord values all the way through his battle with sickness until he died. I saw him stay faithful the whole time. And so now he's my hero. Let me be like that. He's my role model. So I follow him and that helps me to chase happiness in the right places. So find the right role model. That will determine whether you chase happiness in the right places or the wrong places. So that's my first big application for you. Chase happiness in the right places by following the right role models. Choose carefully who you will follow. Second application for you. Do you honor the people that Jesus honored? We know that everything is about to change. We know that the world is about to be flipped upside down. Jesus will honor those whom the world dishonors. And so with that knowledge in mind that inspires us and it challenges us to begin today honoring the kind of people that Jesus will honor then. Okay, so so who is that? Who should we be honoring and blessing with our lives? Well, according to the Beatitudes, it's the poor, the desperate, the neglected, and the sinners. Those are the people whom you should give honor and blessing to. The kind of people that Jesus blesses and the Beatitudes. So let me give you some specific examples. I'm going to challenge you to roll up your sleeves and, and to find someone who this describes. The poor, the desperate, the neglected, the sinners. Who you can bless. Who you can be the, the hands and feet of Jesus to that person. So just a few examples. We could make a massive list. But I'll just give you four examples. Number one, if you want to honor the people that Jesus honors, one possibility would be honor the unborn. Because there is no group on earth who is more desperate than them. They cannot live on their own. And so I would encourage you, if, if that's the group you want to honor, do what you can to promote life. Do what you can to resist abortion. Do what you can to care for those who have unplanned pregnancies. Do what you can, even for those who have had an abortion in the past, be loving to them. That will actually help more people to respond differently when they have an unplanned pregnancy. Do what you can to protect the unborn because that's the kind of person whom Jesus honors in the Beatitudes. They are desperately dependent and in need. A second example would be refugees. 
There's a lot in the news about refugees. I'm not going to talk about the executive order today. Instead, I'm going to talk about our responsibility to the refugees who do come into this country. They are a perfect illustration of those who are poor, desperate, and neglected. They desperately need help. They have nothing. They are running away from some desperate situation. They're coming to our shores. We are called to honor them. What does that look like to honor them? Well, it means bless them, be Jesus to them, lift them up, do everything you can to support them and care for them and show them the love of Jesus Christ. And so we can bless refugees. We can bless the poor. That's a pretty straightforward one. Jesus mentions the poor directly in the parallel in Luke chapter six. We can be the hands and feet of Jesus to the poor, blessing them, honoring, recognizing that in their dependence, they are actually blessed because they recognize their need of God's assistance and we can be God's blessing to them. Okay, so lift up the poor, honor the poor. Honor the sinners, It's remarkable to me that that the religious people of Jesus' day ridiculed Jesus first and foremost for rubbing shoulders with sinners. They did not like it that he spent so much time and was so friendly with the immoral people of the world. Well, my hope is, is that people will say the same about us, that other religious people will say, wow, those people at Grace, they hang out with sinners all the time. Good, let's do that. Let's hang out with sinners. Yes, they listen to a lot of explicit music. They say a lot of cuss words. They do a lot of immoral things. Who cares? We're adults. We can hang out with those people and be Jesus to them because that's what Jesus did. Let's honor and lift up those who are sinners by showing them there's a God who loves you. There's a God who will save you. The more time you can spend with sinful people, loving them and lifting them up, the more you are like Jesus because that's exactly the kind of people he spent his time here on earth with. So my challenge for you today as you walk out of here is to spend some time reflecting on the reality that the world is about to be turned upside down. Are you living with that in mind? Are you living out that belief, that reality that what's valued now will not be valued then? Are you living for the values of the coming world? And are you honoring the people who will be honored in the coming world? Reflect on that and ask God to work on your heart, to show you the right role models to follow, to show you the ways that you can honor the people he honors. Pray that God would use the Beatitudes to change and transform you in some significant way so that when Jesus does come back, you will hear from him, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are coming back and that you are going to turn this world upside down. We praise you that you are not impressed with wealth or beauty or fame or power or intelligence or any of the things that this world values. None of that impresses you. We praise you that what you care about is humility and dependence and mercy and selflessness and a willingness to make peace and a willingness even to suffer for what is right. We praise you for the things that you value and we pray for your help to value them too. Please, Lord, break us of our idolatry of the things this world values. Help us to value what you value. Help us to follow the right role models. I pray for every person in this room that you would help them to be able to see a a man or a woman whom they can follow towards the right things, towards happiness in the right places. And I pray for each of us, God, that you would show us how we practically can get involved in honoring and blessing the kinds of people that you honored and blessed in the Beatitudes. 
Help us to be your hands and feet, Lord Jesus, bringing your good news and your blessing to the poor and neglected, to the desperate and to the sinners. We pray that you would use us as you begin to transform this world to make it all right again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you in a few weeks.